0: Well, I I put up there, what in the world is the church doing? Uh, A journey that begins in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. We'll look at that in just a minute. Um, But I'll tell you what, I grew up in church. I was on the cradle roll, if that means anything to any of you. You know, back, I mean, some of you are old enough to remember this. They used to give out what they called Sunday school pins. Like for attendance, like every year that you'd attended, so many times you got another bar. I would look like an admiral from Russia if <laughs> if if you had one of those Sunday school pins, because I would just have all of the bars there. Um, of course, I was my parents' first church was a Southern Baptist church in Virginia back in the day when you know we'd go, and then the deacons would go out and smoke during the Sunday school church break, and then come back in uh, different different time, different different place. But when you grow up in church. Um, man, there are things that you see that sometimes just encourage the daylights out of you, and there are sometimes you see things. like, What in the world are they doing? Um, I remember there used to be a, a page in the newspaper, and they don't even have those anymore, um, the church page, where all these churches would put out all these things that they wanted to attract you. Uh, I remember churches that if you packed the pew, you'd get some sort of special award. So people were going out in the highways and byways, compelling people to come and sit in their pew in church, because the most people in one pew would get a special prize. I remember one church where, where the uh, pastor said, if we get 500 people here this Sunday, I'll preach from the roof of the building. And I'm waiting for Bob to do that. Because, because we could just have all sorts of fun with that. I remember, and this gets kind of strange, I remember the different kinds of things that they would do to evangelize. Not just put on a program. But I still remember and met the guy who had Hanson's Gospel Birds. Hansen's Gospel Birds put on a show, it was like, a, like parrots and other things like this, some would quote scripture, and one would actually swallow a sword the entire length of his body, which for a parrot wasn't that long, but still, you know, this was what they did to dry, and, and just go, is, is that what Jesus envisioned when he said, on this rock I will build my church and it will feature a, a circus of birds? Um, what should the church be doing? Many churches are very, very content just to be very, very happy with the people that are. As long as we're doing everything the way we've always done it, we don't care if new people come. We don't care if whatever they do. Just don't change anything. I want to be comfortable. And so that's what the church is all about, keeping us comfortable. But is that what it should be doing? Well... I want to suggest to you that there's a whole lot more that Jesus has given the church to do, and, and this is an exciting time to be doing it. Let me take you to the scripture that's going to be my text. I hope I made it large enough, but if not, Acts chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So right there, Jesus kind of spells out for us something that we should be doing, something that is our mission. So today I want to talk to you about this scripture, and then I want to talk to you about what is going on in the world. How is the church doing? It's been 2,000 years since this was given to us. How are we doing? Um, I don't know about you, but I look around at the church in America and the churches I've been a part of, and and it gets discouraging sometimes to see churches closing, to see churches um, not preaching the gospel anymore. You see these buildings that used to represent amazing witness, but now have like 30 people in them, all just kind of doing their own thing and not really doing the work of God. So, What should we be doing? I want to tell you about that, and then I'm gonna close telling you what Grace Redeemer is doing, because we've got some people engaged in this work. Not just me, although I will talk about what we're doing, uh, we've got a lot of people doing God's work, and we want to we tell you about it. So, based on this scripture, what is the church's mission? And I'm going to suggest to you that our mission is witness. It's right there. Uh, so I am being biblical. It's right there. Our mission is to witness. Now, how? Well, remember, we're trying to build disciples, and Pastor Bob gave us three B's that we need to be thinking about when it comes to the church. First one, belong, then believe, then behave. Belong. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute, you have to believe to be a part of the church. Yes, you have to believe to become part of Christ's body. But as the church gathers, there are going to be unbelievers who come our way. And we don't want them to feel like, well, you can't come here until you do either of these other two. There are a lot of churches, and I grew up in some, where, frankly, you'd think behave came first. You know, and, and, and there are some other churches who say, well, it's not you really, we don't need you here until you believe. Well, how are they going to believe if they don't sit under the preaching of the word of God? And and even though we're believers gathered, you'll note Pastor Bob preaches the gospel every single week. Why? Because people need to get saved. And frankly, we need to never forget this is what we're relying on. This is our message. There really isn't anything that's more important than that. So we belong, we believe, we behave. Who do we belong to? Jesus, who in Matthew 11 said, come unto me. Not those of you who are cleaned up, not those of you who are ready for religion. He says, come unto me, you who are what? Weary, heavy laden, burdened, and I'll give you rest. Needy people, needy people. That's why the gospel can be so attractive. We can say to people, are you hurting? Come on in. Well, I don't believe it. I don't care. Come on in. Come on in. Come to Jesus. Discover that he can give rest for the soul and see it in the lives of other people. Then, believe what? John 3.16, the Gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We want people to to come and meet a Savior who loves them. We want them to come and hear the good news that Jesus died for their salvation and then behave how? Well, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you abide in me and in my love, John 15, 1 to 11, tells us over and again, live in Jesus. Live in Jesus and let his life flow through you. You say, well, that Christian's not behaving the way I think they should. You know what? Please, please, please understand you are a poor substitute for the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let the Holy Spirit work in his children. So, we want to to belong, we want to believe, we want to behave. Well, then what? Multiply the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, all... Nations is the word ethne. We get ethnic group from that. All ethne. Teach all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring them into the faith and then teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. And look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission. Belong, believe, behave, and then once we are gathered, we multiply. Multiply. We can't let any any part of that go. We have to do all of this. Okay? So, according to this verse, where do we bear witness? The world. The world. He says, you start, be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. Okay, that's the first. This, this actually it lists four things, but actually it's three groupings. Okay? Jerusalem, that's where you live. That's at home. That's your neighbors. That's your family. That's the people who live right around you, who, have the, who share the same culture, who share the same language, the same kinds of experiences. It's the people you rub shoulders with at home. That is recorded for us in the first, oh, six chapters of Acts or so. And then there's a transition that comes when, Peter, when Stephen preaches his message. Remember, persecution comes, and all except the apostles get scattered where? Into Judea and Samaria. That's nearby. That's moving out a little bit. That's getting a little more uncomfortable. Moving from Jerusalem to the rest of Judea and Samaria. Man, Samaria has people that we look down on. Different ethnicity, different language. Rival peoples. Peoples that we don't feel as comfortable with. It's interesting that one of the seven in the book of Acts, Philip, who went to Samaria to preach the gospel, of, of the seven... It wasn't an apostle who had a nice Jewish name. It was one of the seven who had a Greek name. So even though he was Jewish, he had been exposed to Greek culture. So he was ready to kind of go a little bit further, perhaps. And and he does, and the gospel spreads to Samaria and Judea. And we've got that up until about Acts 13. And then it says, let's not forget the hard-to-reach places, the end of the earth. We we still use that phrase, that's that's from the end of the earth, that's from the ends of the earth. Well, that means something very, very far away, something very distant, very hard to get to. But beginning in Acts 13, this is where the church begins to go. And that's our mission. We are to take this gospel into the unfamiliar and uncomfortable places, the end of the earth. Now, here's where I want to tell you. How is the church doing in 2,000 years? I know we can look at our church, or not our church, but the church in America and say, oh, it's it's not good. You know, I used to think we have to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because after all, things are so embarrassing. The Lord just needs to get the church out of here. It's just, it's doing so poorly. There's going to be about 15 true believers left by the time the Lord comes, you know. But you remember Jesus said something in a very pagan town, Caesarea Philippi. You're going to probably visit it if you go with Pastor Bob the Holy Land Caesarea Philippi Peter confesses his faith and Jesus says it's on this that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it he probably said that in the middle of Caesarea Philippi where there was a huge temple to Pan and there was this open-mouthed cave that had a, a pit down there and many people looked at the god Pan as among other things the guardian of the gate to the underworld so what he's saying is my church is going to grow to the point where even the gates of hell itself, the gates of the grave itself, will not prevail against it. Gates don't move, do they? Well, they open and close, but gates don't march. Gates can be attacked. Jesus envisioned a church that would be on the march, that would be on the move and be growing. So, how are we doing? Let me tell you. I think that there is so much here I want you to see. Oh, I, sorry, I'm hitting the backward button, am I? I, I I'm out of practice here. This is, this is what you need to see. Practicing Christians as a percentage of total world population, okay? I'm going to give you some numbers. I hope statistics don't overwhelm you, and I know the old, the old thing. Statistics don't lie, but statisticians do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm going to try and give you what's, what's true. In 1900, okay, approximately two and a half to two and three-quarter percent of the world's population were practicing Christians. That means not just nominal, we're not talking nominal, we're talking about people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and allegiance to the Great Commission. Does that mean all of them were, man, they were Billy Graham? No, no, but like most churches, this, this would be the people that we would say, these are our people, okay? By 1960, it was 4%. By 1980, it was 6%. By 2010, where this graph ends, 12%. That's not nominal. That's not just say every Catholic, every Orthodox. Do you realize that that's between one and seven, and one of eight of every group of people? And look at how they're distributed. You see that, and and, and this is going to be tough to read, so just bear with me. You see that top section of the pie, that's the big piece that probably Larry would want? You know, the big one. Okay, that's the Christian world, okay? That's like North America. That's Europe. That's all the places where Christianity is the dominant religion. The darkest color there in the center, those are the people in that section who would say, we believe Jesus is the only way to be saved. We are following him. We are sharing the Great Commission. The next band out, the lighter band that's out, is what we call nominal Christians. That's why that's the Christian world, because look, between nominal and real Christians, it's the vast majority of people. And then that band on the outside, those are non-Christians living in that part of the world. Okay. Next section down is the opposite section. It's the Muslim world, where Islam is dominant. Okay? Look at how small that super dark section is near the center. That's true Christians living in the Muslim world. Nominal Christians, where I work in Iraq, there are Chaldean Catholic churches. There are Antiochian Orthodox churches. There are traditional churches. We we call them Christian, but our, our believers there say, you're either Christian or you're Christian Christian, okay? See, Christian Christian means you may have been born in that church, but you've trusted Jesus Christ, okay? so But, but nominal, just, just in name only, Christian, and then, of course, the white there, 1.26 billion people, 3,300 identifiable re- ethnic groups that are unbelievers, okay? so And then, if you go around, you can see the bottom is ethnic tribal religions, Hindu area, that would be India, uh, Buddhist, and then non-religious, that's the former Soviet Union, the places where atheism took hold for a long, long time, and, and people say, I have no religion. So you see, there's, a, there's quite a strange distribution there, but, but look at this graph. How big is the task of reaching the world? In AD 100, it's estimated there was one Bible-believing Christian for every 360 people alive. Okay? By the year 1000, that had only dropped to 270. By 1900, one believer for every 21 unbelievers alive. 2010, one believer for every seven. One believer for every seven. Would you say that we're doing pretty well worldwide? Kind of looks like it to me. We're not talking nominal. We're talking about people who will, who will say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in him as my Savior. Let me show you why, though, it looks so bad to us. All right. Every country that is in that whatever color, I'm, I'm somewhat colorblind, blue, thank you. Every country that's blue there, the rate of growth of Christianity is higher than the rate of growth of the population. Every one of those countries. Every country that is the color of North America there. Yellow, yellow, thank you. Those are the countries where the church is growing, but it is growing slower than the population. It means the church is losing ground, even though it's growing. But you know what's really interesting, and I think it's red, I think there are only, I think, four, maybe five countries in the entire world where Christianity is actually shrinking compared to the population. Now, why is it that we look at things and say, oh, it's really kind of discouraging? (laughs) Well, look where we live. Let me show you. There's another one here with some numbers here. Um, Each circle, it starts with 1970, then 2010, then 2020, and and you see... the the growth of the circles from from 1970 to 2020 over the last 50 years the North American church has grown but only by 2% okay so we're growing but obviously the population of the region has grown faster than that but look at Africa in 1970 6.7 were Bible believing Christians in 2020 18.6 If you want to look at raw numbers, 237.9 million Christians in Africa, look at that. Africa, Asia, Latin America, all outnumber North America in terms of raw numbers of Christians. The only region of the world worse than us, big region would be Europe um, and then the Pacific Islanders. But even there, they're at 18%. They've they've grown a bit, not, not as much as we've done. Let me show you some statistics from the global status of Christianity. This is a report done talking with missionaries and mission works and churches all over the world, evangelicals. It's done at Gordon-Conwell University. Let me show you. On average, since 2000 to 2020, Africa has had 37,825 new Christ followers every day. Every day. Latin America... 16,988. Asia, 13,443. North America, 1,999. We missed that one. Could have rounded it off. Oceania, that's Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, 473. Europe's had eight per day. Do you see the difference? And do you understand why it is that many of us living in our culture think, oh, the church isn't doing all that hot. We're just not there. We're not where it's growing. Can I, can I say, I think Europe has had its chance, and I'm fearful that North America is losing its chance opportunity. God can still do a miracle. God can still revive his church. And he's left us here for that very reason. But this is why we look at things say, oh, this is why missionaries often will come home and say, you can't believe what God is doing in the world. It is incredible. Let me keep going because I want to show you what, what remains. Now, See, with those kinds of numbers, everybody's going to be a Christian in five years. Not so fast. Because there is a great imbalance. We divide the world on the left, the reached world. That is where the gospel has taken root. That is where the gospel is being proclaimed. That is where lots of Christians are. And the unreached world, people groups. Those are distinct ethnic, cultural, language groups. 24,000 of them in the world, approximately. 16,000 have a gospel witness. 8,000 do not. But realize, the non-Christians who are left in the world, 60% of them live in that section where there is no gospel witness. Or there is, no, there is no gospel witness among their people. Practicing Christians in the unreached world? 1%. Whereas 99% of us live in the, well, doesn't that make sense? We live in the reached world. Okay? That makes sense. But look at this, all foreign missionaries, all foreign missionaries, 90% are where the gospel already is. Only 10% are in those people groups, nations, where it isn't. That's the imbalance. How do we reach the remaining 40% if 9 out of every 10 Christian workers is working in the Philippines? There are unsafe people in the Philippines, but you know the Philippines is a missionary sending nation? Nations of Africa. There are regions in Africa that, that still need gospel work. I'm not saying that's not true, but did you, do you understand that in southern Africa, the majority of the people of Zambia are evangelical believers? That in many of these countries, evangelicals are strongly present. Zambia declared itself a Christian nation 15 years ago, much to the chagrin of other religions. Kenya, one of the large is, is, a, is a Christian, Uganda, Nigeria. Now, the church is growing super fast in those regions, and the biggest problem we have there is not, not that the gospel's not taking root, but we just don't have pastors. Did you know if you added up every single pastor in the entire world, every single pastor in the entire world, of every church, only 5% have any theological training whatsoever. 95 have never been to any sort of Bible training at all. How they, how they become the Christian? Who's been saved the longest? Well, I got saved two weeks ago. You're up! But you understand how that puts the church at risk of heresies, of false teaching, of, of other problems when there hasn't been good training. So this is the task that remains. Now, what's our part? What's our part? I'm trying to watch the clock, because I told Bob I would, I, would, I would be good about this. Because, man, wind me up about this, and I could talk for hours. You want to try me? Yeah, uh, no, all right, all right. Grace, is, Grace Redeemer's part in this mission. You say, what can we do? We're a small church. There are lots of bigger churches. There are a lot more significant churches. Well, you know what? Let's just kind of run through it real quickly. We're supposed to bear witness in Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Well, I just sat at my computer trying to think, okay, what are some things we're doing? There's stuff that we call pre-evangelism. We're not necessarily preaching the gospel in the middle of it, but we're reaching out to people. We're trying to establish relationship. Um, This is just a couple. Like uh, When we help with the food pantry, what is the food pantry doing? The food pantry is showing love in Jesus' name. I mean, someone is not standing there with a grocery saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, and, and starts taking you through the four spiritual laws or some other thing like this. No, but... There is power in kindness in Jesus' name. I'll tell you what, when you're dealing with refugee populations that have been persecuted by their own religion, and then people who aren't even in their religion, aren't even part of their culture, show love to them in Jesus' name, don't you think that opens a door? When you as a neighbor welcome someone who's clearly not part of your culture, and you show them, I just love Jesus, and he loves you, and and so I love you too. Can I help you? You don't think that's going to do something? That's important. We, we do that when, when we reach out to O. Henry. We, we do that through the food pantry. We do that when we host groups that, that need help, when we, when we just come alongside and help individually or as a church. We do evangelism. That takes place at place, ministries we're engaged in here locally, like the Thrive Women's Center. Women in crisis come there and, and they receive help. And, and this is not an exhaustive list. I've only been here two years. There's a whole lot more going on than I know. OK, so if you see that, well, what about? It's like, tell me next time I'll add it to my slides and, and, and we'll get it taken care of. Bill Krauss has a ministry, and most of you know about it, where he's giving out apologetics material all the time. You can get on his mailing list, and you can receive information that will tell you, how can I give people better answers when they ask questions doubting the reality of Christianity? Well, just sign up for his list, and he'll he'll give you some of those things. We are looking at a Hispanic ministry in the future, and I don't want to steal too much of his thunder, but I have an idea Pastor Bob's going to talk about something like this in a little bit. Pretty close. We're talking about trying to reach out to the Spanish speakers in our community, start a congregation, begin to be more effective in reaching our neighbors. Because let's face it, people who look like most of us aren't going to be, and speak like most of us, aren't going to be the most effective people to reach people who don't look like us and don't speak our language. So if we're going to reach our Jerusalem, our Jerusalem is multi ethnic. We have to be ready for that. What about Judea and Samaria efforts? Well, we've been engaged in a jail book ministry that Don Anderson has done. Now, I say Judea and Samaria because these prisons are all over the place. And, and really, let's face it, you and I, most of us, maybe some of you are different, but most of us don't have a whole lot of uh, understanding of prison culture. You know, we're not necessarily the people who really get what it's like to be an inmate. Okay? But someone like Dan Anderson, Don Anderson, who's been a chaplain there, has been writing these books, they're gospel books. We have been, we have been paying for them and sending them to chaplains and prisons all over the country. Um, Rick Rude, a hospital chaplain. He's doing it in Seattle. He did it here before. But uh, you know Rick, and, and frankly, he's catching people at a time when life can be scary. and come alongside people. I have a good friend who was on my staff, served as a missionary in Mongolia for years, serves as a church pastor. You know what he's doing right now? He's a hospice chaplain. He's spending time with people who are dying to bring them the good news of Jesus. I mean, we can do those kinds of things. Uh, the Gibsons have relocated, they're actually in Garland now, and, and that's not the only place that they minister, but they are reaching out through their mission to teams that are in the DFW area, to ethnic churches in the DFW area, to others within the state of Texas. And so their ministry kind of breaks into two. They're doing ministry regionally here, trying to help churches connect. They actually wanna help churches understand what opportunities exist among ethnic groups here in Texas. But also, at least once a year, they're gonna be traveling overseas and they're going to be ministering in the places where they ministered historically over in Asia. So we are part of Judea and Samaria efforts with them. Pat Bull ministers in a university, but it's a university where she ministers to international students. And these, do you know what it's like to, I, I actually remember meeting and hearing the story of an international student who came, he was a Muslim, he, he came to America, he went to school and, and he went home. And he said, you know, the entire time I was there, I never had a single person ever invite me into their home. Never did. Pat makes sure on her campus that never happens. And people who work with international student ministry do those kinds of things. Betty Ann Steadwell is a part of the Christar staff. Now, they're located here in the States, but frankly, she helps keep their finances afloat so that they are ready to deploy their missionaries wherever they go in the world. And Christar concentrates on that unreached part of the world. Well, then there's end-of-the-earth efforts. One of them you're very familiar with, there there are those that work among evangelized and unevangelized nations. When I say evangelized, I'm not trying to say that there aren't people who need Christ. There are, but the the gospel's at least gone there, okay? For example, the Garcias are working in Peru. Lots of Christians in Peru. But the Garcias are actually working among, among disabled and people in many of the rural areas where services just don't exist for others. Along with them in the same region in Peru are the Thomases. And they are ministering and sharing the gospel there. They have actually been seconded to another agency to kind of increase the reach in that part of Peru and South America. Remy Bateman does pastor training, something similar to what I do. But he does it in a place where the gospel is exploding but there's no trained leadership. Uganda, Nigeria, Af- uh, Kenya, other places in Africa. He's, he has done it, I believe, in Moldova, where the gospel is taking root and growing, but there just aren't trained pastors. And then you've got those end of the earth efforts that are in the places that are still considered unevangelized. By the way, what is an unreached people? Most commonly accepted definition is less than two percent of the people of that ethnic group have heard the gospel, uh, have have believed the gospel. And actually have been able to form a church that could start another church it's kind of a technical definition but frankly unless you got at least two percent of a population that believe and have got a church and could, it's that area is considered unreached okay so Nabi and Ruba Abbasi they're boy, they're rock stars in Jordan not just in Jordan in the Middle East Ruba especially with her Arab women today that ministry actually reaches where we serve in Iraq. It reaches where we work in Egypt. We, we partner with them in a number of ways. But they're there in Jordan and in the Middle East where among the Arab populations, there just aren't that many identifiable Christians. And then Kathy and I, uh, my ministry basically takes me to India, Iraq, and Egypt. And uh, in those three places, we serve with church planting. We have a child sponsorship program. You've all heard of child sponsorship, but we do it through refugees or needy peoples. And we have, as the leader of each of those ministries, a pastor who visits all of those families. And out of these church planting or these um, child sponsorship ministries, we plant a church in those refugee camps in those areas. And so we use child sponsorship as a means of planting the church. Uh, We also have a Bible college in India that has now gotten its accreditation. And through that, we are starting a campus of the Bible college in Iraq. First Bible college in Iraq that we know of. Only one that we know of. And it's tiny. But that's, that's our prayer. So... What can you do? Well, you can pray. And, and by the way, the Lord Jesus does not look at that as being less than. What does he say in Luke 10? He says, the harvest is plentiful, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust forth laborers into his work. You know, prayer is not preparation for the work. Uh, E.M. Bounds says prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. Are you praying for missionaries? Are you praying to the Lord of the harvest? Are you praying for those 40% of the world's population who not only don't know Jesus, but they live in the places where nobody around them knows Jesus? I mean, that's what we're here to do. Pray. Pray for more workers. We need them. You saw 10% of the workers are in the area where that 40% that are unreached can be found give. You didn't expect a missionary to stand up here and not tell you to give, did you? I want to tell you, how much should you give? Well, think about it. Um, 98% of the resource of the Christian church worldwide is here in America. And uh, if the work's going to get done in the rest of the world, guess who's got to be a little bit more sacrificial than we've been historically. I want to tell you what I was told years and years ago. I I love this. And Old evangelists would come to the church. Say, How much should you give? You ought to give till it hurt. You know, he based that biblically. Remember when David was going to offer God a sacrifice and a guy says, here, take my oxen, take this. What did David say? He says, I will not give to the Lord that that costs me nothing. If all you're giving is out of the margins, out of the, I've got so much left, I can give a little here. That's not biblical giving. You ought to give till it hurts. We see that all the time when people take offerings in the churches that we serve in the Middle East. And you say, well, that's not, that's not much, but it's a lot for them. So give till it hurts. And then he ought to say, and then keep giving till it stops hurting. Keep giving until you're ready to say, Lord, I want to be a part of what you want me to do. I want you to be a part of what we're engaged I consider it a privilege to give to the work of God around the world and to support what's going on. There are challenges. There is still persecution. I was in Iraq and teaching a class. One of our students converted from Islam, his father had called upon the clan, which was a large clan in the nation, to execute his son because his son had dishonored him by becoming a Christian. He was in hiding. He took our first class about one day into the second class. He got a phone call and he disappeared. I have no idea what happened to him. I don't know if something came up and he just had to move, but he's had to move four different times because his family found him. Our team got chased out of a town doing a, a Christmas distribution. A leader of the radical Muslim party in town got up and said, this is heresy and we need to stop this immediately. And I was talking with Mariana, our child sponsorship leader. She said, I sent everybody out. They changed clothes. I quickly finished the presentation, gave out what we were going to give out and got out of town with maybe five minutes to spare. It still happens. There's persecution. There's There's Antagonism And frankly, there's apathy among way too many Christians. That's probably one of the biggest things we have to overcome. Do you know what a privilege I consider to be to speak to you, that Pastor Bob would open the pulpit so that I could speak to you on one of the Sundays that he gets? Do you know how rare that is for missionaries? Nearly impossible. And so I am so grateful. You can pray, you can give. And I don't want you to forget, you can go, you can go. There are opportunities right now, missions begging for people to take on short-term opportunities around the world, using the skills that you already have. There's still a need for career missionaries. There's still a need for people who will say, you know what, I wanna find some way to use what I have to reach the places that haven't been reached. Maybe through taking a job in one of these places, One of the great lights for the gospel is in Dubai, where three evangelical churches have been planted, and and believers are coming, and and, and even unbelievers are coming to Dubai, finding finding jobs, but finding the Lord and then going back into their own countries. There are so many opportunities, but it would be wrong for us to believe that God doesn't have a purpose for us here, now. Can I suggest to you, and now I'm going to take my last five minutes to, to talk about us and talk about what, what's going on. Can I? But before I even do that, can I just suggest to you, um, in praying for missionaries, every one of our missionaries sends most of their communications online. You can sign up for an email. And if you, you know, just read what you can. But But get it, read it. The board out there has pictures of all of our missionaries, except I noticed our picture is missing, but that's okay because you see me all the time. Anyway, we'll, we'll get ours back up. Um, but, uh, but look there and look for literature. I, anytime someone mails us things, we try to put them out there so that if there are multiple copies, you can take one. If there's just one copy, read it, leave it there. We want you to know what our missionaries are doing. These are the people our church is actively financially supporting. You are helping put them where they are ministering. Through your support, you're helping, you are for Kathy and I, our sending church. A sending church is a church from which missionaries go on behalf of that church and on behalf of the gospel into their parts of the world. We, You are our sending church. You are a supporting church to others, but we, we, you own us in a sense, and we own you. We are a sending, we have a sending relationship, just like Paul and the church at Antioch. Okay, that's the relationship that we want to cultivate. You you give to missions when you support the church, but you know, you can give beyond that. Uh, We always have in in our lives and marriage, we encourage people to do that. You can support individual missionaries. Some of you already are, are supporting individual missionaries and missions that you know about. You've signed up and, and you send them every month individual support and that's tremendous Give when there's a special project that the church is doing for missions. Now, shameless plug for indigenous ministries. I told you we use child sponsorship as a means to plant churches in Iraq, in Egypt, and we're getting ready to start it up again in India. It's a challenging work. $39 a month doesn't just feed the child. $39 a month feeds the child and a sibling and two parents. If it's a larger family than that, we put two children in the program. Our church, as a church, sponsors eight children already. So when you give to the church, you're already helping those eight children. But some of you said, well, is it possible to do it uh, on my own? Of course it is. And I'm here to help you do it. Okay? We have, I I asked the home office to send me you know, would you send me maybe six profiles, you know, so if, if there are people, I thought that would be very generous, so I, they sent me 20. <laughs> they said, we've had all these kids come into the program, and we don't have sponsors. We don't have sponsors for them. I don't know if we can do 20 here or not. Maybe we can. I'd love to try. Maybe you're saying, I really want to help the Bible college. That, that Training pastors? Absolutely. That's a bit more expensive because we have to pay faculty and staff. We have a campus in India. $100 a month is a scholarship for a child, for a, a young man or woman to attend our, our Bible college. And I brought a couple profiles there if you want to help with that. No, no compulsion to give uh, other than if God stirs your heart. I love that passage when it talks about the giving to the to the tabernacle in Exodus. Do you remember twice it says in Exodus and everyone who's who that God stirred their hearts gave freely. Don't want a begrudging giver, but man, if God's stirring your heart and you want to help, you can change a life for 39 bucks. You can, you can educate a pastor for $100. You can, you, you can do that. That's available to you. Out on our table, we have those profiles. We have the eight letters. Bob brought them for us. We, the eight letters we got from our kids just recently for Easter, You know who are saying, hey, thank you. Thank you and and eight of you wrote to them and so if you want to find your kid and find the letter it's there and if that's not enough to get you to, to our table right next to it i brought baklava back from iraq <laughs> five pounds of the stuff okay so you know that is, that is you know i will use i will be shameless in trying to get you over there to take a look at what's going on get a pen Take a pen, it has Indigenous Ministries name on it, but, but pray for us. And can I just ask you to pray for our mission? Most of you know I was in Iraq, got back a week ago Friday, and during that time, our mission's founder and leader, my dear, dear friend John Cook, had a heart attack and went to be with Jesus in the middle of the trip. And one of the most shocking things I think I've ever had to go through I found him, and then when the, hospi- when the ambulance came and the hospital pronounced him, then I'm having to deal with what do we do? But you know, the bigger question for me isn't so much what do we do with the remains. That was a tough question, and I got lots of stories about that. The biggest question was I looked at all of these people who look at him as a spiritual father. He'd brought them the gospel, he gave them a purpose. And now the Lord's taken him. And it was not not just Iraq, it was hearing from our workers in Egypt, hearing from our workers in India, feeling it myself. I am gonna continue. Uh, John's wife Dee was a co-founder of this thing. She's already helping take the steps for us to be able to continue to do what we're doing. I'm gonna to seek to continue to do what I'm doing but it, it can take the wind out of your sails to lose the person who is kind of your visionary leader, who, who never saw a need he didn't think we should be meeting, you know, and whose heart didn't break for all those people who still didn't have the gospel. Would you pray for us as we seek to deal with all of that? Pray as we look for next steps and just what God is going to do. Can I tell you, What in the world is the church doing? The church is fulfilling her great commission. She is taking the gospel everywhere. And I hope today you'll leave with a little bit more spring in your step, not feeling, oh, it's such a hard task. Well, it is a hard task. But God is getting the work done. It's like Paul said, and I've closed this before, when he talked about Ephesus, there is a wide door of effective service open, and there are many adversaries. Pray for the harvest. Pray against the adversaries. Pray that the gospel will go everywhere because what does the Bible say? Jesus said in Matthew 24 or 25. He says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all the earth as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Right in Acts 1:6, when they asked, is now when you're going to establish the kingdom? Jesus said, not for you to know. But I'll tell you this. My gospel has to get to everybody. Let's get that done and watch for the Lord to come. Father, help us as we hear these words, as we think about this task. Help us to be faithful. Help us to do all that you call us to do. Lord, we may say, I can't go, but Lord, we can give and we certainly can pray. And Lord, there may be some, and I know uh, a lot of folks here feel like, I'm, I'm done with my career. But there may be some who need to think about opportunities. And frankly, there are some people young enough here to be thinking, could I, could I invest my life in something so impossibly big that only you could make it happen? God, I pray you'd, you'd send forth laborers into your harvest and help those laborers be able to stay there because we at home hold the ropes. We at home keep them supplied. And we keep them prayed for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.